we get to hear uh, much uh, as we read Scripture of how God's grace can do amazing things. And, uh, and it's so good to be reminded in the life of a particular individual what God's grace can do. And so that's what we have an opportunity to do this morning as Laura just shares her story of God's grace in her life. So if you'd share that with us, that'd be great. Thanks, Laura. Yeah, that would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, well, most of you have heard my story because I got to share it before, so I won't go into as much detail. Um, and Jeremy said I could only have five minutes, so I had to shorten it down just a little bit. But the fun thing about sharing uh, your faith journey is I think that each time you learn or discover something new. And so this is my third time or fourth time sharing it. So um, I discovered a lot this time too. So I grew up in a loving Christian home and I'm grateful that a lot of my family is here today uh, where church was very important. We, attended, we attended every Sunday and were very active in our faith. It wasn't ever a big secret that religion was very important to my family. I knew the importance of being a Christian, but I lived a life of pleasing other people instead of pleasing our Lord. I did what was considered the right thing because I wanted the recognition or I wanted to make other people happy. I received a lot of joy and happiness from seeing other people happy or pleased with my actions. I would feel really good about myself until it wore off and then I was searching for the next thing to do to please people so that joy and happiness would come back. My people pleasing continu continued through high school and into college. I never wanted to be seen as the outcast or the weird girl, so I would always give in to what other people around me were doing. This caused a lot of issues when I, when I got to college. I struggled finding people with the same beliefs as me, and I hid the fact that I was a Christian because most of the people I was surrounded with didn't have the same morals as me. I tried for a few months to live their life and put my beliefs and morals on the back burner. I felt like I could take a break from my beliefs and would start back up when I was out of college. I thought I had an excuse. I was a college student. I was busy, and being a believer just wasn't on my prior priority list, and the world said that was okay. As expected, this landed me into a pretty deep and dark valley. I struggled finding happiness in all the wrong places. I lived a very worldly life and couldn't understand why my friends were so happy and content, but I wasn't. I dealt with a lot of guilt and frustration during that time. During my sophomore year of college, I reached an all-time low. I felt so lonely and disconnected from everyone. I knew I didn't want to continue down the road I was headed, but I wasn't sure where else to go. I quickly realized the one thing I was lacking was the existence of Jesus in my life. I began reading my Bible and found some joy in it, but I struggled finding a community with similar beliefs. I've always been an introvert and in times of need had had the mentality that I can do it all on my own. I thought I had Jesus and that was all I needed. But by the grace of God, I, made, I reunited with a friend who lived in my dorm freshman year. She was a believer and invited me to a different Christian ministry opportunities on campus. I didn't want to go at first as I knew I would be an outsider, but I was desperate for friends. I was extremely uncomfortable when I first started attending the different ministries. It seemed like they spoke a totally different language than me. I had spent 19 years of my life thinking that I knew who Jesus was and how to get to heaven, but these people made me question everything I'd ever known. I slowly began to break down the walls that I had built up and finally let Jesus into my heart. It was a slow transformation, but it was exactly how he wanted it to be. I realized that although I thought I had been living a life fully devoted to Christ, I had been more focused on pleasing people and hearing the words, You're such a great girl, Laura. My transformation really started when I realized how personal and intimate my God was. I finally made the connection that he died on that cross for me. 
I had always known the story of the crucifixion and the importance it holds, but I had never made the connection of how it was related to me. Too often, I think people believe that after they accept Jesus into their hearts and finally surrender their lives to him, everything is going to be rainbows and butterflies. My life has been far from that, but I have a joy and purpose that I never had before. Although I was baptized as a baby and attended, attended church my whole life, I always went because I wanted to please other people, not because it was my choice or something I chose to do for the right reasons. Four years ago, I made the choice to follow Jesus and surrender my life to him. Although most people are baptized shortly after that transformation, I struggled making that decision. The thought of being baptized as a believer made, an, made me uncomfortable, so I ignored the calling. As we all know, we can only ignore things for a certain amount of time. The idea of baptism was brought up to me about six months ago, and although I've tried to ignore it again, I couldn't. My heart transformation happened a while ago, and my baptism isn't saying I'm going to heaven, but it's a way to witness to other people. It's my outward display of what has happened inside. So thank you for being a part of it. Thank you, Laura, for sharing that story of God's grace, and I totally would have given you more than five minutes. It's good to hear that. I'm grateful uh, for God's grace in her life, in my life, and many of our lives would have a story. Maybe some of it sounds a little similar to Laura's, and maybe not. But we're going to take a break today from our series in the Psalms, how we've been going through, and I love going through the Bible, taking a section and going through verse by verse. That's what I've done every week since we've been here for seven months. But we're going to do something a little different today. And, and the reason for that is I know that people come with all sorts of different understandings of baptism based on maybe what church you have been a part of. Different churches teach so many different things. And so I wanted today to open up the Bible and try and answer some big questions about baptism. We're going to answer the, try and ask the question. You can see uh, an outline on the back of your uh, bulletin. That might help you to follow along and maybe even take some notes because we'll hop around a little bit. But the questions we're going to try to answer are, why should we be baptized? Who should be baptized? We're going to talk a little bit about baptism and the gospel. When should we be baptized? Then how should we be baptized? Like we do with everything as a church, we don't want to do things just because, well, that's what I've heard you're supposed to do. We don't base what we do based on church history, but on the Word of God. And so we're going to spend a lot of time this morning flipping through different passages of Scripture. We're going to start, though, in Romans chapter 6, 1 through 14. And so if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open to Romans 6, 1 through 14. And as we usually do, because I'm going to say a lot of words this morning, uh, but what we know for sure is that the Bible is the Word of God, and so it's different than any words that I would speak. And so to help us remember that, let's stand together, if you're able, as we read God's Word. Reading out of Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Well, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know? that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him 
in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin. Once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You can be seated. Bob brought a prop, and so I brought a prop with me as well today that I think will help us understand baptism. You might wonder how my kind of beat-up Minnesota Twins hat will help us better understand baptism, but I hope it does. I've been a Twins fan for a long time. been following the Minnesota Twins since I was a little kid. I waved my Homer hanky when they played in the World Series in 1987 and again in 1991. I would watch them on TV, went to a couple games at the Metrodome uh, with my family, and, uh, and really loved listening to Herb Carneal and John Gordon announce twin games on the radio. Dan Gladden's all right, but he's not quite them. Uh, but I enjoy listening and following the Minnesota Twins. I have this hat because I am a Twins fan, and you're going to find out a little bit, hopefully, today, of how my Twins hat relates to baptism. The big idea of the message this morning is this. Baptism is a symbol of our identification with Jesus in His death and resurrection. It is an outward expression of an inward reality. And and Laura even mentioned that as she shared her testimony. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be answering some of those big questions. Uh, One question before I get to those questions, though, is how important is baptism? We believe it's important. And that's why I'm going to take a whole Sunday to talk about it. It's something that we ought to be studying. But it is not something that we are going to choose as a church to divide over. We recognize that people coming from different backgrounds are going to have different understandings of baptism. And so, if you have come to a different conclusion about baptism than we do, you can still be a member of our church. Now, if we disagree that, if if, if we we say as a church that Jesus is God, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, we'll divide over that. You cannot be a member of our church. If you will not stand on the Bible as the authoritative Word of God, then you cannot be a member of our church. But if you have a different idea, a different understanding of what baptism is, we'll still have fellowship. You can still be a part of our church. So it's not the most important or most major thing to what we're all about, but it is important. And I think you'll see why it's important as we try and answer the rest of these questions this morning. First question is this, why should we be baptized? Why? Why should we be baptized? Laura talked about how she, you know, four years ago thought about it, but then just kind of put it off for a long time until today. Why should we be baptized? 
Maybe a, a better first question is, should we be baptized? And I would say, yes, it just seems to be assumed all throughout Scripture that once somebody becomes a Christian, they're baptized. Paul is assuming that in the book of Romans right here, he's talking to the Romans who he's never met yet. As Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome, he has not traveled there yet. He's not met these people, but his assumption is because they are part of the church, because they're Christians, they've been baptized. And so he speaks to them of their baptism, assuming that it's happened. We see that all throughout Scripture. But why? Why should we be baptized? I want to give you first a bad reason and then two good reasons, okay? Bad reason to be baptized or wrong motivation to be baptized is to be saved. Okay? We cannot find any teaching anywhere in Scripture that will teach that baptism somehow results in our salvation. That baptism has the power somehow to change a sick and sinful heart, a broken heart, into a righteous, pure, clean heart. Baptism does not have the power to do that. For infants, for adults, for anybody. Is there anybody in here who would admit to being a fan of some Major League Baseball team other than the Minnesota Twins? <laughs> wow. Okay, a-, a lot of people. Mark, I saw your hand go up first and very high. You are a St. Louis Cardinals fan, okay? All right, Mark is a St. Louis Cardinals fan. Now, now, you guys know that if I were to walk over to Mark and I were to take my Minnesota Twins hat and place, even if Mark was willing to allow me to do this, place over Mark's head my Minnesota Twins cap, would that make Mark a follower of the Minnesota Twins? No. My cap has no power whatsoever to cause Mark's heart to change. Mark's heart is set on the St. Louis Cardinals, and my hat will not change that. Likewise, baptism does not have the power to take somebody's sinful heart and change it and transform it to become a follower of Jesus. Okay? So we do not get baptized to be saved. What are a couple of good reasons to be baptized then? Good reason number one is to be obedient. We get baptized to be obedient because Jesus said to be baptized. In the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, is going to let the church know, here's what you're supposed to be all about. And we quote this often as a church. And he says this, Go and make disciples of all nations, doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. And behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And that's not the only spot, but that's one spot that we can turn and see that baptism is something that we are commanded to do. And so we get baptized to be obedient. Another reason to be baptized is to publicly identify ourselves with Jesus. And Laura also mentioned this as she shared her story. That Laura, upon her conversion, was brought into union with Christ. There was a change of Laura's heart. Laura spoke of, at one time, worshiping the idol of the acceptance and approval of other people. That functionally served as her God. That's what she desired. More than she desired Jesus, she desired the acceptance and approval of other people. That led to, to different sorts of sin in her life. But according to Scripture, at the moment of her conversion, she becomes a new creation, a new person. 2 Corinthians 5.17 speaks of us becoming a new creation. 
There's actually this new Laura. There was an old Laura, and now there is a new Laura. Those of you, many of us just know the new Laura. We've just met her because you moved to town a year ago. Uh, and, but, but some of you, especially her family probably here, know the old Laura. And some of you might look at Laura and like, hey, the old Laura wasn't that bad. I didn't mind the old Laura. But scripturally, here's a little understanding of what Laura and all of us prior to Christ were like. Look at this passage we're looking at today. Romans chapter 6. I want you to look at verse 6. Here's what happens as we're converted. We know that our old self, okay, so there was this old self, was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our old self was enslaved to sin. Whether we would say, like, sin is my master, we probably wouldn't put it that way. But really, that's reality. Before Christ, before our conversion, our master is sin. And we will obey our master, and we will sin. But Jesus came, and Jesus died, and in our, be, through our union with him, as we trust in him, we are, our old self is crucified with him and buried, just as he was really crucified and really buried. And so our baptism is a public identification of us with Jesus in his crucifixion. Now the hope that Laura has to become a new Laura is not that Laura is somehow strong enough to defeat sin on her own. Laura's hope is that Jesus came and did what she couldn't do. Jesus alone has the power to defeat sin and death, and he has come and done that. And so she is just showing us, giving us a picture of her identification with him and what he's already accomplished. And so now she lives a new life. Verse 11 says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The old self was alive to sin and dead to God. The new self is dead to sin and alive to God. Now we're going to spend most of our time on this next question. I should mention, though, with my hat, my hat, again, does not make me a follower of the twins, but it does publicly identify myself as a, as a follower of the twins. When I put this hat on, people that are also followers of the twins might come and talk to me about the twins because I'm publicly identifying myself as a follower of the twins. In her baptism, Laura is simply publicly identifying herself with Jesus. Okay? All right. Who should be baptized? This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Like I said, churches disagree on this question. Some churches will baptize infants only. Some churches will baptize believers only. Some churches will do both. Some churches do neither. Some of you here this morning have been baptized as an infant. Some of you have been baptized as a believer. Some as both. Some as neither. So, who ought to be baptized? Well, in our church, we practice what we call and many other churches do this as well, believer's baptism. That is, only those who have made a credible profession of faith in Jesus will be baptized. And so, why do we do that? Is it just some cool idea that we came up with? If, if we based what we did with baptism on church history, we would probably do both. Because if, if our basis for baptism was church history... Both have been done all throughout church history. Certainly at the beginning of church history, all we really see is baptism of believers. But over time, the church shifted and, and 
baptized infants. And, and through that time, there were also people just baptizing believers, and now we have churches that are doing both. But we want the Word of God to guide how we do baptism and who we baptize. And so, the conclusion we've come to is that those who have made a credible profession of faith in Jesus are the ones who, be, who should be baptized. How do we get that? Well, we go through and look at baptism in Scripture. You open up to the book of Acts, and, and you could go through this. We don't have time to go through it this morning. I'll give you a couple references if you want to do it on your own. Acts 2.41, Acts 8.12, Acts 10.47-48. But the pattern all through the book of Acts is this. That the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is preached to people, and those people who hear the gospel, some of them repent of their sin, respond to the gospel by repenting of their sin and trusting in Jesus. And that is immediately usually followed by baptism. And that's the pattern we see all through the book of Acts. And if we're talking about baptism being a public identification with Christ in his death and resurrection, if you look at the passage we're looking at today, Romans 6, if you look at verses 3 to 4, the picture that we see in Romans 3 to 4 is not really possible to picture in any other way. We're picturing something that's happened in the life of a believer. Somebody who has turned from their sin to trust in Jesus can now be identified with Jesus in his death and resurrection in a way that an infant could not. It talks about at the end of verse 4, this is so that we might walk in newness of life. That there is this old life and then a new life. And the baptism symbolizes this turn from the old life to the new life. So it makes the most sense that baptism would happen after that transformation has taken place. After the old self has died and a new creation has become, then the symbol of what's already happened is done. And so baptism, we see, is a picture of a much more glorious reality. Baptism is just a picture of something we call the gospel. And I want to be sure, we're going to kind of take a break from talking about baptism for just a moment, because I want to be sure on this. If you hear nothing else from the sermon this morning, I don't care in the end if you agree with me or our church on baptism all that much. But here's what I really care about. I want everybody in here to walk out this morning with a clear understanding of the gospel that the baptism pictures. Okay? And to do that, we're going to just look through the first part of the book of Romans. Okay? If you look at the book of Romans, you're going to find this. And we'll see this all throughout Scripture, but I just want to stay in Romans. The first thing you're going to see is this, that we as humans are sinful. By nature, it's just who we are. And by choice. It's just what we really want to do. We want to sin. I have three children. Kirsten and I have three children. We have not taken any of them to sin lessons. We have not done that. They have learned quite well how to sin on their own because it is their nature. How did that come? That came through the sin of one man, Adam. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Just on the same page in my Bible. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And we know, like you cannot live in this world and say, and you cannot honestly look at your own life and say, there's no sin, I'm doing really well. The world seems to be doing really well. 
Here's what our world and here's what our own hearts more often look like. Look at Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 32, and tell me if this doesn't describe, tell me if you have not been hurt because of some of this in yourself and in other people. Listen, Romans 1, 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And listen to this list. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree. You see all that? And here's what it says. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's our world. We see sin, and sin is somehow attractive, and sin pervades our world, and it pervades our own hearts. I mean, you might like, well, I'm not a murderer, but is there some stuff in that list that does describe you? Yeah. Gossips, slanderers, disobedient of parents, all sorts of things. They're haughty, boastful, all sorts of things that describe us. And because of our sin, we are, in Romans chapter 5, called enemies of God. God does not look at our sin and say, well, that's okay, at least they're trying really hard. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Here's what it says. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Sin makes us deserving of God's wrath. And it is a righteous judgment. It's not an unfair judgment. We have certainly rebelled against our holy God and broken His law. Therefore, we are deserving of His righteous judgment and His wrath. Now that sounds a little bit hopeless. And, and, you, and for those of you who might be tempted to say, well, I know some people like that who deserve God's wrath. And most of them are locked up in prison right now. Well... Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Let's see who this affects. Romans 3, 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is where all of us are. All of us in sin, deserving of God's wrath, everyone needing to be saved. And it seems like a very bleak picture in the gospel. Gospel means good news. And you're like, hey, Pastor Jeremy... Where's the good news in that? Because that sounds pretty ugly. I'm a sinner by nature and by choice, and because of that, I deserve the righteous judgment and wrath of God Almighty. Where's the good news? And that's why we've got to keep reading the book of Romans. I want to specifically look at verses 24 and 25 in chapter 3. We already saw verse 23. Go ahead and put that on the screen if you could, Chance. Verse 23 says... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I want to break the next two verses down. Here is the hope of the gospel. Here is how this bleak picture of our sin and God's wrath becomes good news. Verse 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. Justified means declared righteous. That means that God the judge looks upon us 
and he can somehow, us who are guilty, he can look at us and he can say, righteous, not guilty. Well, how can he do that? That doesn't sound like a very good judge. For a judge to look upon somebody who is very clearly guilty and say, not guilty, righteous. How can God do that and still be a good judge? Well, that's what comes next. Look at verse 24. We're justified by His grace as a gift. There's where we see the love and mercy of our great God. He is a righteous judge, but by His grace as a gift. Something He just gives. I couldn't earn that. I couldn't go to Sunday school long enough. I couldn't get baptized enough times, go through confirmation or whatever else, church attendance, nothing could cause me to earn God's grace. I am justified and declared righteous because of God's grace as a gift. But now, if a human judge would do that, if something happened to somebody that you loved and you wanted justice to be served, but the judge just said, you know what, I am a very loving judge, and so this person can just go home, you would be upset. And we would have a right to be upset. So how is it that God can be a good and loving judge and a righteous judge and not punish us for our sin? That's what comes next. Look, we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. So how is it that God can look on a sinful person like Laura Scott, like me, and say, you're righteous? Because I know in my heart that I am not. How can God do that? It's because of His grace in what He did with His Son, whom He put forward, it says, as a propitiation, which is a big word which means wrath absorber. He put forward Jesus as the one who would absorb my wrath, who would be my redemption, who would buy me out of my slavery to sin and self. Jesus came as our propitiation, as our redemption. And so that's where our hope lies. Not in ourselves, getting ourselves together and becoming better, but in what Christ has already done by His blood shed on the cross. And so how do we get this? Does this just come to everybody? Because Jesus died on the cross, is everybody then saved? No. So what do I have to do? Do I have to be baptized? No. How do I receive this? Look at it. To be received by faith. It's by trusting in Jesus. Trusting that what He accomplished for us was enough and submitting ourselves to Him as our Lord, as our Master for the rest of our lives. And that changes everything. We then, it says in Romans 5.1, have been justified by by faith. We have peace with God. We before were enemies of God, but we can now have peace with God through faith in what Jesus has done. That's the good news, and that changes everything. And now, rather than worshiping any idol that you want to put in there, Laura worshiped the idol of acceptance of other people. I worshiped that one for a time as well. There's a lot of different idols that we can worship, but once we understand the gospel and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our life is transformed, and we now want to spend it worshiping Him and serving Him. And to some people, that doesn't make a lot of sense. 
That's the gospel. That's Laura's desire. And in a few moments, as she gets baptized, she's going to be getting into this water. She's not getting into this water to be saved. That's already happened. She can't become any more... God's not going to declare her more righteous because of what she does here. God declares her righteous. She is justified because of what Jesus has already done and by her faith in Him. This is simply a picture. She's not doing this to jump through some hoop that our church made up. She's doing this to publicly identify herself with Jesus as a picture of this good news of the gospel. And so because of that, because of the connection between baptism and the gospel, that's why we don't baptize infants. Listen, we can put, I can put on our kids, we've got this onesie that we've put on our kids, a Minnesota Twins onesie. All three of our kids have worn that. That onesie has no power to make our kids Twins fans. Okay? It's not going to cause them to follow the Twins. And you know what? I don't even care if my, t- my, my kids, the, the Twins stink anyway, right? They're not even good. And so I don't really care if my kids are followers of the Minnesota Twins. But you know what I want as a parent? You know what we want as parents? We desire that our kids would spend the rest of their lives knowing and worshiping Jesus and finding their life and their joy and their satisfaction and eternal life in Him. That's what we want. And if we could baptize our kids and make that happen, then we'd baptize them and make that happen. But we can't. We simply depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts in such a way that when they look at Jesus and they hear the gospel, they hear it as good news and they choose to turn from their sin and trust and worship Jesus with the rest of their lives. That's our hope. The last two questions we're going to go over very fast because it's time to baptize Laura here pretty soon. When should we be baptized? We should be baptized, as we've kind of already talked about, after you've put your faith in Jesus. If you have turned from death to life, if you've turned from your sin to Jesus, then you ought to be baptized. Now, if can this happen when you're five years old? Can you be saved? Can you be converted when you're five years old? Yes. We've got some young children in our church who have understood the gospel to the degree that they can, and they have trusted in Jesus and are saved. We don't typically baptize five- and six-year-olds in the church because baptism, because it's a picture of a much greater reality, it's hard. That's an abstract kind of thing, to have a symbol of something much greater. And we really want to wait till kids can really understand that so that their baptism is memorable and, and, and something they can understand. And so we typically won't baptize children until they're 11, 12, so that they can understand that kind of thing. But baptism, as you look in Scripture, it usually happens immediately. You might remember the story in Acts chapter 8. Philip runs into this Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch is riding along in his chariot, reading through the book of Isaiah, trying to understand it. When Philip shows up, because the Spirit tells Philip, go talk to this guy, he goes and he talks to this eunuch, and the eunuch says, I'm reading this in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. I don't understand it. Can you explain it to me? Philip explains it to him, shows him how it's about Jesus. This man repents of his sin on the spot in his chariot, trusts in Jesus, and immediately he's saved. He's converted. He becomes a Christian. And as they're riding along, it says in verse 36, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And then in the next verse we read, And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Immediately, he trusted in Jesus and was baptized. 
That's a great way to do it. But if you're a Christian, you've trusted in Jesus and you haven't been baptized, it's not too late. You want to talk more about that? Come and talk to me about it. You're considering it. Maybe you're like Laura was like, I probably should do this, but I really don't want to do this. Let's talk about that. Ask God to just uh, give you guidance in that area. Last question is, how should we be baptized? You're going to notice, some of you have witnessed baptisms like this. This is the way a lot of churches do baptisms. You're going to notice that, that Laura will be baptized by full immersion. We're going to put her entire body under the water and take her entire body back up. Why do we do that? Well, it's because that's what the word means. Um, baptizo is a Greek word, and so we didn't even really translate it. We did what we call transliterate. The, the New Testament was written in Greek, and the Greek word for baptize is baptizo. And that was a word that was not usually meant to be used in a religious context. It was a word that everybody would use when they talked about, like, immersing something in the water. Like, if you needed to wash something, they would say, baptize it, immerse it in the water, get it wet. Um, something was really dirty, you know, like, you got, like, a really dirty dish, and you got, like, you got to immerse it, you got to let it soak, you got you to get it in the water. That's what baptize meant. And so, if we were practicing baptism in some other method by sprinkling or pouring or something like that, I think people from the first century would come and say, what are you doing? Uh, didn't you, aren't you calling this baptism? Because baptism means immersing. That's what the word means. So that's one of the reasons that we baptize by immersion. But also, like we talked about, this is a picture. This is a picture of being identified with Jesus in his death and burial. It's like going under the water and in his resurrection. That just as Jesus really died and was really buried, three days later, and we're not going to keep Laura under for three days, uh, was really raised again to new life. And we too, as we put our trust in Jesus, are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And so as I put Laura under the water, I'm actually going to say, buried in the likeness of his death. And as I take her back up, I'm going to say, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Because it's a picture of what Jesus has already done and her union with him. I'm very grateful that we have the privilege to witness the baptism of Laura Scott today. I hope that somehow through all of that talking really fast, you got some understanding of what baptism is all about. But what I really hope is that, that this baptism that you witness, for those of you who have repented of your sin and you're living with Jesus as your Lord, your master, your king, you're no longer enslaved to sin, I hope that this baptism is a great reminder for you of all that Christ has accomplished for you. But here's what I also hope. I also recognize that in a crowd this big, that there are going to be people who maybe are just starting to understand the gospel. That as it was laid out this morning, you're starting to understand, okay, I get it. Maybe before you thought that everybody was generally pretty good. And so what was there to be saved from? God's a good and loving God, and everybody eventually somehow will be saved. But now as you heard the truth this morning from the Word of God, maybe you're starting to understand that God is unique. He is perfect and holy and righteous and pure, and that we as humans have broken His law. We have offended Him. We are enemies of God. And apart from something happening, we are sitting under His righteous judgment, deserving of His wrath. 
And maybe you're just starting to get this, or, or maybe you're just wrestling with this. And then you hear the good news, and it sounds like really good news to you, that it's not based on anything that you do, baptism or anything else. I don't have to work hard to somehow earn God's favor, but God's favor was earned for me by Jesus in His death and resurrection. And that all I have to do is receive that by faith, turn from my sin, trust in Jesus as my Lord and my Savior, and I will be saved. And that might be where some of you are at today. I can think of no greater joy probably for Laura than that you would come to her and say, Laura, it was on the day that you were baptized that I really heard the gospel and God was working in my heart and that was the day that I made a decision to turn from my sin and trust in Jesus. You want to talk to somebody about that? If that's where you're at, you're wrestling with this, you're grappling with this, maybe you feel like it's time to just make this decision, come and talk to me, come and talk to Laura. She'll be wet, but she'll talk to you anyway. Talk to one of us. One of the people that was on the Haiti team, anybody, a lot of people here would be willing to talk to you about that. Laura, if you could come forward, and uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, give us all a picture of Laura's baptism, uh, of, of Laura's conversion. Um, this is not Laura's conversion. That's already taken place, but this is a picture of what God has already done in her heart. It's a privilege to be a part of it, and I hope you guys recognize that this is a privilege also to be a witness to it. Yep. All right. Well, Laura has shared with each of you the story of God's grace in her life shown to her in Jesus Christ and of her decision to make a commitment to turn from her sin and trust in Jesus. And so now she comes before you having made this profession of faith to the body this morning. Because of that, it is my privilege to baptize you, Laura Scott, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection.